welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. We're starting a series called Remember. Um, If you read the book of Deuteronomy, it was this book that Moses wrote for the Israelites to um, have as kind of this instruction to form the people of God as they were about to inhabit the promised land. They were wandering for 40 years in the desert. And Deuteronomy is this letter that it has a overwhelming command to remember what God had done. I love what Walter Brueggemann says. He says in regards to this phrase that uh, we people are, are forgetful people. God's people are a forgetful people. And he says, prosperity breeds amnesia. What happens when a, a community that was forced to live in, depend, live in dependence upon the Lord? What happens when they go into a land filled with giants? Yes, and fortified cities? Yes, but a land with milk and honey. A land that ensures the prosperity for them and their children and grandchildren and beyond. And so this is what this book is about. And for us, I just want to use this, the next several weeks before we move as a call to remember the things that are most important to us as a church, that we must not forget as we head into a space that is our own. And it's different than Franklin. Our offices were moved there this week, and it is awesome. (laughs) Every day, I'm like, I can't believe I get to work here. I can't believe we're gonna worship here. We're gonna do prayer gatherings. I can't believe this gets to be a center for sending all the things we get to do. But in that, in that I carry this weight, this burden to, to communicate and to work, to build into our community the things that matter most because when we move, we will change. But I want our convictions to be steel and in place in every one of us. You guys good with that? Deuteronomy 8, it says this, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. So the book of Deuteronomy is framed around this and we get all these commands and this reflection from Moses about what it means to be the people of God in the promised land, in the place of wealth, in the place of security and dependence. And I just have to say, there's a lot of themes from this that come to us as a church. We've never had a building of our own. For 14 years, we've gathered as a church. We've bounced around from nightclub to Seventh-day Adventist churches to uh, event centers to middle schools to other churches. We've been all over the place. Our offices have been in uh, little tiny 400 square foot spaces on Broadway. We've been in downtown. We've been in other churches. And now we're going to get our own space. And I am cautioning all of us to remember. And there's a text that actually will will set this, this first conviction up in Revelation. So if you have a Bible, go to the end of the, book, uh, the Bible in Revelation. I want to hear the pages. I want to see your hands scrolling like a conductor. Nobody's going to do it for me? Okay, that's fine. I was being serious. So that's fine. Thank you. I appreciate that. I see you all the way from the East Coast. Um, 
Revelation chapter two. So Revelation, if you, you're like, oh yeah, I love Revelation. This is a book about discipleship. It's that, it's that simple. I know we get excited thinking, oh, it's about the news. It's not about the news. It's about discipleship to Jesus. This is written by the pastor or the apostle John, the apostle John, a disciple of Jesus. And the primary purpose of Revelation is to communicate to the church in the first century Roman Empire to remain courageously loyal to Jesus in a culture and a society that's feverishly worshiping Caesar or the beast. So the first two or a few chapters are dedicated to the the seven churches. Um, And this book is both apocalyptic and prophetic, but it's also pastoral. It's It's a pastoral letter to local churches that John knew. So we pick up in verse one of chapter two. Some of it uh, I'll explain in a second, but let's read this whole thing together because I want you to hear um, these words. So John is writing after seeing a vision from Jesus himself and an angel appears to him and in his vision he sees Jesus walking, the conquering lamb. He's walking among his, his churches and it says this, verse one of chapter two. You guys there? To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Right, and this is the letter. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now real quick, because you don't know the context and we've done Revelation back in 2020 or at least half of the book. I still wanna complete the other half. Um, Jesus is the one who holds the stars in his right hand, the seven stars, the word number seven is completeness and it's showing he has the authority of creation. He's holding creation in his hands and this this Jesus holding creation and all power and authority in his hands is walking among the seven lampstands. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches that Paul, that John is writing to, excuse me. The lampstand represents the light of the church in each local context. Are you with me? He's walking among the churches. I want you to see this. Close your eyes if you have to. Imagine Jesus holding all things, all power and authority, the raised king from who, who conquered death, Satan, who brought back the reign that was given to Satan, now gives it to the church. He's walking here at Franklin Middle School, Wandering around, looking at his disciples. That's what he's saying. That's what he's describing in an apocalyptic way. Apocalyptic's like a genre. Right? I know we get confused, but it's like a romantic comedy genre. There are some rules to romantic comedy that you expect from that genre. Are you with me? Like Matthew McConaughey's gonna be in it. There's basic rules. There's gonna be some type of conflict after he wins the love and then, and then they go through a season of conflict and they come back and then it's happily ever after, something like that. Unless it's like an indie romantic comedy and then it's just depressing. <laughs> Revelation 2, it says, so he's, he's walking and now you're gonna get this. It says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Oh, what a church, huh? Yet, I hold this against you. You 
have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's stop there. So John writing a letter to a specific place in a specific time to a specific group of people that he had a relationship with. Are you with me? In a genre called apocalyptic that is both prophetic, apocalyptic, and pastoral, meaning, hey, church, we need to get our act together, okay? You got some things going on, let's figure this out. And he writes it from a vision from Jesus. And it says, to the angel, I'm just gonna give you a couple of expository points. Do you like this? You guys okay with that? I love it, I can't help myself. This is how I preach, from the word of God. Expository means we're preaching from the word. So it says, to the angel. Now, here there are three ways to interpret this. Greek scholars and New Testament scholars try to understand what was John doing to the angel. Some say it's to the preacher in Ephesus, someone who's bringing the message of this letter to Ephesus, to the preacher who's going to deliver this. Others say it's the ethos or the ethos of the church, to the, 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 the spirit of the local church in Ephesus, the, to that thing within us that represents the garden, whatever that is, that, that emphasis of our local church. The third way, which I, I can't help but agree with, is to the angel overseeing the local church in Ephesus. And if you've been with us through our uh, uh, deliverance series, we have a theology of warfare, we have a theology of the supernatural. We know that there are divine beings, supernatural beings that are operating in God's heaven, in the heavenly realms that can either agree with God or disagree with God, that have dominion, that have um, authority and have free will. And what it seems, especially because the rest of Revelation, also 1 Corinthians, Paul will hint at this when he talks about the order of worship in the church in Corinth. Um, It seems that there are guardian angels overseeing local churches. That's good news, isn't it? That maybe the garden church has some angels with us. Now, I know some of us, especially in the evangelical world, we didn't really talk about that, but I love that. I would love, sometimes I feel like I would love to see the angelic. But then I see the encounters that most people have in the Bible with them, and I'm like, maybe I'm not ready for that. (laughs) Some churches should ask for a replacement angel. Would you agree? Just kidding, just kidding. Okay, I don't know what that means. The second thing... Second thing is he writes to Ephesus, and we've done so much background on Ephesus, um, but that's helpful that this is a local church. This this is not just universal. There's specific issues that are going on in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, we need to know, was one of the, uh, the major influences in the Christian church by the 90s, around this t- the time Re- Revelation was written. It was the, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire by the 90s right? Um, Not 1990, 90 when this was written. Um, 
It was a global city. It was a trade city. It was an urban epicenter. It was the center for Artemis worship, which we've talked about. Her temple was also the banking capital of Asia. It was a bustling business center. They had a marketplace called the Agora. And in the Agora, you could sell goods and and buy goods from around the world. And in order to get into the marketplace, you had to take a pinch of salt or dye and worship Caesar as Lord. And in order to get in, you had to have a stamp. That was the the incense you would use and you would get a mark on your wrist or on your forehead. And then you could go and participate in trade in the commerce of the day. You with me? You're like, whoa, that sounds familiar. Yes, that's exactly what was referred to. And this is the point. What will you do, church? Will you worship the idols of your day so you can participate in the economy? Or will you resist the temptation of idolatry? And will you resist and not take up the mark of the beast? You're like, oh no, it's Elon Musk in implants. That's not what it's talking about. Any form of actual biblical scholarship, especially if you go into the Greek historical account, you'll see that this is what it was referring to. Are you with me? The word mark, by the way, is the same work for being sealed in the Holy Spirit in Paul's letters. So are you sealed in the Spirit or are you sealed by a culture of worship that's known for idolatry? And so you have Ephesus, by the way. Ephesus is worshiping Artemis, and it was an epicenter for worshiping the imperial court. I'm sorry, the imperial cult of Rome. The imperial cult of Rome was the practice of adding Caesar to your list of gods that you would worship. We've talked about this. So they believe Caesar, Augustus was God, so Ephesus built a statue to that god. They also, at that time, um, that this was written, Domitian, the emperor, was, was the uh, emperor of, of Rome, and they built a 50-foot statue on top of this mountain where it was the first thing you would see when you walked into Ephesus. So what you had is politics, religion, and other deities and business all flowing together in Ephesus. Are you with me? Politics, religion, and consumerism all flowing together in one cohesive current or river that made you have to figure out how to engage in the culture of your day as a follower of Jesus that doesn't worship other gods. This is what John is speaking to in that context. This is what the letter of Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy are talking about. So the question is, how do you remain faithful to Jesus in a context where it's to, to be Ephesian is to worship Artemis and Caesar. To buy and sell goods requires worship and sacrifice to the gods. And it says, uh, and Paul, uh, John writes, Caesar, I'm sorry, John writes, not Caesar, Jesus is walking among the churches. He's intimately involved. He's not some absent deity. He is intimately involved in the life of the local church. How are we doing, church? Are we going to applaud this? Yeah. <laughs> I love the word of God. Last night I was reading before bed and I like found this word in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and I was doing a Greek study and I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe, I was freaking out and Alex like, what is going on? What are you reading? I'm like, the Bible said, oh come on, I don't want to hear about this right now. No, she was cool. But I love it. 
she was cool. She's like, what did you read? And I found this word that it's so, it's so personal to me. I'm just a side note. We'll have to cut the edit. This is just for me, okay? You, some of you know my story of the Nazarite, studying the Nazarite vow and all that stuff. Well, I found this passage where, Jesus, where Paul says to Timothy, like, uh, set an example, right, in speech, in conduct, in love, and in purity, but that word purity is only used two times in the New Testament by Paul. And it's a, it's a reference to, when trying to define, to define it in Greek, it's a reference to the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament. I was like, oh my gosh, here's Timothy in Ephesus. And Paul's saying, by the way, it, you should live in a way that represents purity like the Nazarites. Isn't that interesting? I loved it. Anyway, side note, you got confused. Let's go back. Jesus says, I know your deeds. <clears throat> I know your deeds. This is a, a direct like robbery. He's stealing what would happen by Roman governors writing to various uh, cities or, or leaders in other contexts. It's, it's a royal edict. Um, and some also tie it to a prophetic oracle. So, so, so John has Jesus speaking this royal edict, and you would start with the positive, just like in marriage. Start with affirmation, folks, before the critique, okay? Just saying this over and over again. Anyone, anyone that has ears to hear, let me just say, don't nudge the spouse, but I just want to say, start with the affirmation. It makes the critique a little easier. Are you with me? So here's the affirmation to the church. Ready? He says, <clears throat> I know your deeds, your hard work, which is translated to strenuous labor. You're going all out in your work for Jesus. Oh, I know your, your he says, and your perseverance that word perseverance is about, uh, it's, it's, it's about persevering under the pressure to give in to idolatry. That there's this pressure that builds up in the book of Revelation where, where it's becoming harder and harder to be Christian. It's getting harder, not, not like, it, like it is today, like where, where if you get caught doing things, you, you can no longer, I guess that's similar, like you can no longer sell products because you're doing things. I guess there's some of that, but what would happen later on is you would get killed for your beliefs. Like many places around the world, still Christianity is the number one persecuted religion in the world. People are dying every day because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and what Jesus is saying to the local church is you've persevered. You've not given in. You've remained faithful to me, even with all of the cult cultural norms that would make it easy for you to just swim with the current of culture. I know you can't tolerate the wicked people. In other words, they're committed to a life of purity, a life of doctrine. They haven't compromised to culture. They live with orthodoxy. I would even argue they had a courageous fidelity to orthodoxy. Everyone's saying, this is now the norm. And they're like, no, Jesus means, says this is now the norm. That's crazy. There's going to be a lot more of that in our culture and society, where it'll get a lot easier as Christians to um, no longer be faithful to orthodoxy. This is where it's going to get quiet, and we're going to have a lot of debates. But you need to hear this. As followers of Jesus in this church, Scripture is the final authority on how we live. It, it, it has to be. And we can, we, we can say amen when it fits us, and when it fits our theology that we agree with, but what happens when that orthodoxy bumps up against practices in our own life? We're gonna talk about money. 
We're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about technology. We're going to talk about sex, sexuality, identity, gender. We're going to talk about all that stuff and how the Bible is the authority. And Jesus says to Ephesus, in that context, which is a lot like Southern California, you have persevered. You have stayed the course. You are an Orthodox church. You have endured hardships. You have not grown weary. This church was a powerful, influential, hardworking, resisting evil, resisting corruption, pure, faithful, Orthodox church. Come on, that's so good. But then he goes, I hold this against you. Historically, I'm not going to read this yet. Historically, this church was founded by Paul in in Acts chapter 19. Twelve disciples that weren't baptized in the Spirit, they get baptized in the Spirit when Paul shows up. He's there for two and a half years. Later on, the leadership goes to Priscilla and Aquila. Later on, it will go to Timothy. And then what we find out is after Timothy gets killed by the Romans, John, the apostle John, takes over the leadership. John takes over the leadership in Ephesus before he's cast into Patmos. And uh, taking his adopted mother, the mother of Jesus, So what we know about Ephesus historically is John led it as the elder at one point and Jesus' mom was part of the local church. I love the history of the church. It's a beautiful history. The church began with this passion and zeal, this, this radical way. They move from the synagogue after three months. They go to the Hall of Tyrannus. They're meeting every single day. They're being discipled by Paul. The word of God is being taught and all over Asia Minor here about Jesus. Not only that, there are extraordinary miracles, miracles that offend us, like handkerchiefs, touched by Paul, going to people demon-possessed and sick and being delivered and healed. You're like, whoa, that is crazy. Could you imagine All right, elders, get together. We got a bunch of handkerchiefs we're gonna send out to all over the world right now. Lord Jesus, heal people with these things. You just take it out, we're going by, hit the weight, and the waiter's like, I'm delivered. Like, could you imagine? (laughs) Peter, his shadow heals the sick. That's in the Bible. And we're thinking, I don't want the spirit, I want order. This is the beginning, and, that, and then it moves, from, it moves from extraordinary miracles to a revival in the city. They, they realize culture is against their way of life of Jesus, so they need to live differently, so they give all this, the, the things that represent culture, the sorcery, the idols dedicated to other gods, they go and they have a bonfire, and then there's a riot. The industry around the idolatry is upset because they're no longer worshiping the way <clears throat> the rest of culture in the city is worshiping. This is how the story begins. And what happens? What happens? Well, what happens is the church gets successful. It becomes normal life. There's routine. The the young adult passionate ministry have kids and they have a nine to five. You know, the ministry where exorcisms were happening all the way, all the time are now happening occasionally but they're still working at it. They're going for it. You know, maybe they got really successful and influential and they're trying to put on conferences to show other churches in Asia Minor how to do it. 
They developed great programs. They had <clears throat> seeker sensitive gatherings. They had kids' ministry, and then they were piping out their kids' ministry content to other places. You know, they were doing these things. They were getting focused on the ministry. They, they were being successful in spiritual formation development. Maybe they started a version of Alpha that was taking these pagan Artemis worship, worshipers through this hospitality thing where they would eventually get filled with the Holy Spirit. And they got good at that stuff. They were helping take care of the poor. They started orphanages. These are all things they do they just got really good at activity and life in the church became about duty and hobby and habit and Jesus says you have forsaken the love you had at first they had fallen out of pure and simple devotion they fell out of affection and intimacy And Jesus is standing in the middle of the local church like he would be today, right in the middle. And he's saying today, I've seen all the work you're doing. I see the practicing the way of Jesus stuff. I see the alpha. I see the Bible devotion in the morning. I see that you're setting up and tearing down for 14 years. I see you're volunteering in the kids' ministry. I see the 24-7 prayer you're gonna do. You're doing a fast right now. I see all the work. But have you forgotten first love? First love is, in Greek, is referring to the affectionate intimacy that two lovers have in the beginning. It's that innocent first love that breaks. Is this mine? Yeah, okay. Let me grab it. It's that intimate experience that you have. Some of you... Some of you um, have had that moment on that youth getaway, that YWAM trip with your DTS where God met you like you've never been met before and your whole life changed. I I was in Santa Barbara going to UCSB, totally depressed and anxious and drinking all the time and I met Jesus at Jesus Burgers. A ministry to drunk college students, still going on today. Free cheeseburger, tons of love and grace. I gave my life back to Jesus. I repented. And it, it was like this thing happened. It's like I, and, and I went home. In my home, I heard this music, and I just wanted to hear more of the music, so I began to rearrange the furniture in the house. I began to take things off the wall and throw things out, and I kept. And then I opened up the doors, and I wanted everyone to hear the music. I mean, when I was 18, when I came back to Jesus, I, I, came, I left UCSB. I was going to Huntington Beach, of all places, on, and standing with an NASB Bible telling people they were going to hell, they needed Jesus. Because I didn't know how else to do it. That's what I was taught by Calvary Chapel. I passed out tracks by Ray Comfort. Million dollar question, you going to hell when you, or heaven when you die? I, I, here's a tip, you know, leaving tips when I would go out to eat, which I was poor, so I couldn't go out to eat very often. But, but what was that? It was this innocent, pure going after. I started serving in Skid Row every single Saturday. I would make sandwiches when I was at Vanguard to feed the homeless because I just didn't know any better. I just wanted people to know about Jesus. It's like when you fall in love and you just don't know any better. I didn't have a girlfriend before Alex. You're like, what? (laughs) This young strapping man. 
<clears throat> didn't always look like this. I'll say that, but, but I, the Lord protected me. I met Alex. I fell in love. And you, you get this, right? In the, back then, you would stay up. You would drive hours to Northern California to just be with her for a day. You, I wrote sonnets and poems, confessing, and poems and love notes because I was emo. Remember the emo days? I talked about it last week. We would stay up late in our dorms on AIM, Messenger. Hers was Lexi Gurley something. Mine was Hot DR. And <laughs> it's all true. I remember our first date. I'd never taken a girl out. Girl out. And my friend who used to be our worship pastor, Mickey, was like, here's what you got to do. Take her to Laguna Beach. You know, <clears throat> I know this spot. The day before, he drove me and walked me down the beach to this spot because I was so nervous. I didn't know what to do. I've never been on a date. We go to what was Diedrich's in Laguna Beach. It's now Starbucks. I paid with quarters because I didn't have a job. I drove my Cougar LS 1989 with sheepskin. Um, uh, covers on the seats, right? To Laguna, we walk down and I confessed my love for her, which was just like, hey, I want to date you, I think. I want to be your boyfriend or whatever. And, and we started dating. And in that season, it was passionate. It was fire. It was, you, you go all out. You woo them into liking you. And then what happens? <laughs> you get married. What happens? You, you get wounded. You take it for granted. It becomes duty. What used to be sonnets and love letters becomes just give me the list. Am I right? Until you're like, that's enough. I got to date you again. I got to be, I got to woo you again. And all I think Jesus is saying is there's a sim simple beginning love relationship that takes place. But like all relationships, there's growth and dynamic and it becomes complex. And in the complexity, we lose sight of that simple devotion of love. There's a simplicity on the other side of complexity that Jesus woos Ephesus back into and draws, him in, draws Ephesus into a place which then comes with a warning. And I'll talk about the warning in a second, but I want to say, do you think Ephesus listened to the warning? This local church, which started with zeal and passion, burning the idols, um, and then Jesus confronts that all this activity is nothing if you don't have love. All this activity doesn't mean anything unless you worship me with your affection. Cool, you give generously. Are you affectionate to me in worship? Jesus wants to know. Will you surrender your heart? Not just your wallet, not just your time, your passionate worship that offends people who like it ordinary. Will you be that kind of lay it down, alabaster jar kind of worshiper? Or will you just settle into the routines and practice the way? Ephesus, a few years later, becomes 90% Christian. And at that time, they burn the temple of Artemis. They destroy it. A couple hundred years later in 404 AD, a few miles away in Turkey, the same region of Ephesus, the church is thriving. It's well, it's under the Roman Empire. And there's a, there's a particular church called Hagia Sophia. Hagia Sophia built this beautiful building and the emperor at that time was not a Christian. He wanted to build a statue to his wife in the church. The bishop said no. 
So the bishop gets exiled. The Roman emperor says, you're exiled. We're going to build a statue without you, without your permission. So the church that night has the building. They get into the building without their leadership, without the elders, and they say, tomorrow the emperor is going to start construction in this building. What do we do? And they burn the place down. First love. First love. How do we get back to that first love? If you're here and you've lost that first love, how do you get back to AIMing again? <laughs> he says this Jesus says, Consider how far you have fallen. That word is remember. Remember, consider, remember. It says, Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is a warning. And I wonder if Jesus is not warning the church right now about what it means to have a missional presence in the cities that we live in. That this text perhaps is helpful. We've made an industry out of church. We've made an industry out of church. There are industries that sell you merch. There are albums. Nothing wrong with all this stuff, but we've made an industry that makes it successful. There is a church planning industry that makes it successful. And I wonder if we've lost heart about the gospel. Less people are planting and pastoring churches than ever before. Less missionaries are going to places that need to hear the gospel, need to hear the name of Jesus because they haven't heard it in their own name or language. I wonder if we've been comfortable and content with a consumer-focused church that's an industry that makes us happy rather than the thing that's propelling us towards Christ-likeness, towards the mission and the end goal, which is the renewal of all things. And I wonder if we are listening to the warning, and I mean church, I mean disciples of Jesus, you and I. What would he say to us? This is the process back. So first of all, he says it's a warning. The lampstand is a symbol of our witness into the cities we're in as a local church. What if Jesus took away our witness? How do we get back? How do we restore first love? Number one, remember. Consider how far you have fallen. For Ephesus, it was to tell stories of how it began. Do you remember the passionate church we once were when the Spirit of God came and we were in the hall of Tyrannus and there were signs and wonders and there was a bonfire of idols? Do you remember what it was like? It was a focus of devotion and attention. We let God be the center, not our lives. God was the big story, not our lives. We are here to remember the God stories the God stories of absolute surrender, the God stories of my neighbor came to faith, the God stories of this person was healed, the God stories of we gave $40,000 to, to Franklin before we left, the God stories, we haven't done that yet, I want to. We, the God stories <laughs> of extravagant generosity and scandalous hospitality. Remember, remember. Number two, repent. He says it, consider how far you've fallen, repent. I love this word. I know it's associated with sin, but the word repent simply means to change one's mind or in the Hebrew, to turn around, to change directions, to turn from your idols, to uh, make a decision right now to start anew. This is what I love about Christianity. It's about second, third, fourth, 78th chances. Like right now, this is what it means to repent. There's new information or old information that's become new because you're listening to it right now. 
this information that is being preached right now because the word of God is being preached to you. The spirit activates something in your mind and heart, connecting your soul to Jesus. The spirit inside of you is connected to the Holy Spirit and he's bubbling up things inside of you. And what you have the opportunity to do is to let that word become saturated in good soil so that you can produce a harvest of a hundredfold. It doesn't mean you do a 180. It means you change course by a couple of degrees. You're going this way, and then you remember that it's about first love, and you don't just throw everything out. You just go this way. And over eternity, that's a massive shift. Do you agree? To change one's mind and say, I've missed it. It's not, woe is me. God, forgive me. He's already forgiven you. So if a list comes up, bring it to him. He's throwing it out. And then go. Walk towards that. Live towards that. Think towards that. And then tomorrow you're going to make a mistake. Remember and repent. For those of us that have learned to repent, we're met by a God that's closest identified as the loving father running after the prodigal son or daughter. By the time we can give our excuses, he's laughing with his love. And in the, the Greek, he can't stop kissing us. Repent. Repentance is a call for ongoing and, uh, and complete change of mind and action. It's not just intellectual transformation. It's a lifestyle of transformation. Repentance is connected to sin because God designed us to live in perfection, Genesis 1 and 2. But what Genesis 3 reveals is that we are living outside of that in our own rebellion. So repentance is, is stepping towards shalom. When you realize there's sin in your life, like I did today as I was singing songs of I love your presence, the Lord reminded me of sin. And then he reminded me of his faithfulness. When you realize there's sin in your life, you realize that Jesus died for your sin. And Paul says that faith is the necessary response. And repentance is the first active step towards faith. Repentance, in other words, is how we walk out our faith with God. It's about realigning our life back to God and his ways. So repentance is about realigning your life back to the way God designed you to live in the first place. Repentance in five chapters. I'm going to close in just a second, but here's repentance in five chapters. This is not in the notes. I've shared this before. I'm taking this from one of the men who taught me how to preach, a guy named Mike Erie. Chapter one, this is repentance in five chapters. Chapter one, I'm walking down a street. I fall into a hole. I don't know how I got there. It takes me a long time to find a way out. I eventually get out. Chapter two, I'm walking down a street. I fall into a hole. This time I know how I got there. I know how to get out. I get out of the hole. Chapter three, I'm walking down the street. I fall into a hole. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I'm walking down a street. I walk around the hole. Chapter five, I walk down a different street. Number one is to remember Number two is to repent. And number three, probably the most profound for us in this moment, especially in our culture of industry around the church, return to the things you did at first. It's so simple. We've been praying as a leadership and talking to our staff and processing what this next season is going to look like. The question now is like, how do I cultivate first love again? I really believe it's doing the things you did at first. The simple, the basics of Christianity is what I want to call it. So I have a couple of points, right? Number one, get ready, super complex. Commit to a quiet time. (laughs) 
I'm serious. How do you find that first love passion? I talk to so many people, and what you don't realize is where your attention goes, there your worship is. Right? So your attention is the beginning of our worship. Our attention is the beginning of our worship. So commit to a regular time of devotion. What do you do in a devotion or a quiet time? Let's make quiet time great again. That's going to be a shirt. I know it. (laughs) Read scriptures. Pray. Confess your sins to God. Worship. I'm going to hang out on worship for one second. We need to be worshipers of Jesus. I love worshiping God. I love it. Everything else has a little bit of me focus in it. Worship gets rid of all of that, unless it's focused on your genre or playlist. Worship is about bringing your stuff to Jesus. It's about bringing your best. It's about bringing your attention. In a world where we have a podcast and songs and we have, we have uh, devotionals and Bible apps and all these ways of journaling and connecting with God, which I'm going to talk about, worship is selfless. It's realigning your life to God by telling God who he is and how great he is. And there's nothing else in your life you should be worshiping, but we do. And I feel like as a church, this is where that passion will come from. When we learn to give ourselves in ways that feel unnatural to God. Next time you have a devotion and nobody's up in the morning, put on a worship song, get on your knees and sing to him. When was the last time you were were commuting to your office and you brought your affections to the Lord? I love you, Jesus. I love your presence, Lord. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Bring out the 90s. Did you feel the mountains tremble? Let's go. I don't care. (laughs) How great is our God? Bring out whatever you have. Practice. So when you come here, you're bringing your best. It's not a warm-up to the end song. I'm ready to go. Put me in, coach. Don Williams, my spiritual father, used to say, you're the choir, and this team is the conductor. You are the choir of the church. So go practice this week, all right? Uh, Give generously. Um, Easiest way to connect your resources to your, or your heart to uh, to God is to give your resources, Give generously. And I don't, I don't just mean in the church. Like, yeah, you should be tithing. I mean, when people have a need, give generously. When that thought pops into your head spontaneously, like buy that person that drink or that coffee or give this person money, just do it. I've never seen that go bad. I've only seen remarkable stories. Truly, I have. Be taken advantage of when it comes to that stuff. Like, I tell this all the time, and and this is how I feel, honestly, whenever I get an opportunity to be a part of something that's happening, it's like multi-level marketing. Like, I really feel this about it. Like, I want in as early as possible. (laughs) Have you ever been approached, like, someone's like, hey, man, it's been a while, let's hang out. And they're, like, trying to sell, like, oils to you. And then they're like, here's the thing, like, if you buy this, you, you get it discounted if you become partner. And then when you get a partner, you can get people under you. And, and look, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great way to make money and, and lose friendships. But I think that <laughs> we've all been there. And just so everyone knows, I'm not talking about anyone, okay? So I don't want an email being like, hey, I'm not talking about anyone. 
Um, but like, there's like this excitement, like, oh my gosh, if we get in, look at what could happen. That's how I feel about generosity. Like someone's like, hey, I'm, I'm giving to this thing. I'm like, oh, and this other person's giving to this thing. I'm like, I want in, right? Because I want to inherit in the spiritual what's happening in the physical. Because Jesus says to Paul, it's better to give than receive, right? He says this. So I've been training my kids. This is truth. Jesus says, it is better to give than receive. I want to know what he means through experience. So give generously. I could go off on that one. I'll save it for another sermon. Journal, bless those around you. So look for ways to bless. The second thing to how to cultivate faith or how to get back to that first love is get near the flame of passion. Like if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. This is C.S. Lewis. I just think that so often we lose our flame of passion because we're no longer around people that have that passion. Right? Like you want to you get passionate, go hang out with the kids. See what they're, they're passionate about? Everything. <laughs> everything. They want to they know everything all at once. At all times. There's a movie about it. Um, find people. Serve on a team. Be near people who are passionate. The people who are showing up on Wednesdays at 7.30 or back when we're at Grace, 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. I forget what time. Obviously, I wasn't there. Uh, to pray. <laughs> They're the ones that are carrying passion. The people, there was a lot of people in pre-service prayer. There's this passion rising. Show up near the flame. Church, this is one of those times. Look, I've never called you all to this. This is that moment. You are going to miss out. If you get three people behind you, then it will be great. No, I'm just kidding. This, you are going to miss out. God is waking up the church in this moment, for this moment, for this time. Wake up to it. Are you good? Last thing is do it with community. Seek God in community. You cannot do this alone. You need to be in a house church. You need to find disciples that you're being discipled. I love what Jason said last week. He made it possible for all of us to make disciples, didn't he? It's like all of you were like, oh my gosh, I'm so convicted. And then you're like, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) He made it as, it's like, all right, open up your life to someone, anyone, right? Like occasionally, as often as you can, and if you can, that's okay. It's that simple. It's like the lowest bar for discipleship. It was way down here. And I loved it because it was so gentle. Jason was so gentle. If I said it, you would have been condemned. You would have been like, I need, I'm not a Christian anymore. Like, but he said it, and you're all going to do it, right? Right? No, I'm just kidding. So be in a discipleship group. Make disciples. Join a, uh, start a house church. We need house church pastors. I'm going to just tell you something. We're going to move our church is going to grow. <clears throat> Some of you are going to be upset about that. You're going to be like the laborer who's been working early in the morning. And all these people are like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And you're like, I've been here for 14 years. I've been setting up and tearing down. And now worship volunteers push on and that's it. <clears throat> <laughs> ah, I, oh, I, I deserve more. Just little tiny hints. Would you serve the people that aren't here yet by being a house church leader? By opening up space for them to be a part of this thing we have that more people need. How to cultivate first love passion.
passion. It just commit to a quiet time. Get near the flame of passion. To see God in community. Let's rekindle our first love again, shall we? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.